This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. When I was about four years old, I was out hiking with my family and a tornado hit. It was small and we ended up unhurt. But one of the images I remember from that day is a massive tree had fallen over into the parking area just two spaces to the right of our car. Natural disasters are so often followed up by the phrase, it could have been worse. In this week's story, Teller Lot Hill recalls his own experiences, helping others pick up after hurricanes that were worse, and how in these moments of loss, he discovered what was truly important. Recorded live at Pub 626 in Chicago in December 2015, Second Story is proud to present How We Survive. For just a moment, see in your mind your home, your community, your neighborhood. See the buildings, streets, cars, maybe lawns, mailboxes, garages, fences, lawn ornaments, perhaps toys dropped after playtime. Now imagine that the trees are suddenly scattered like pickup sticks and twisted from trunks and crisscrossed, piled in some places, piercing walls in others. Imagine layers upon layers of grit and sludge covering and staining everything as buildings and homes list from their foundations or fall in on themselves. In every direction, car wheels now point skyward or sideways or are buried up to their fenders in muck and mud. For most of us, it's hard to imagine how quickly our homes and neighborhoods can be upended by a natural disaster, like happened to communities in and around New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina ripped across the Gulf Shore a decade ago, when I still believed that such things only happened to other people. And then, three years ago, The eye of Superstorm Sandy rolled directly over the small community where my mom lived on the New Jersey shore. Do you know how much in your home actually floats? Practically everything. Bottles, shoes, hairbrushes, loaves of bread, bags of cat food, blankets, pillows, lampshades, couches, televisions, anything plastic, anything wooden, anything living that can't get to high ground. A hurricane doesn't discriminate between the humble homes of the Lower Ninth Ward or the gated communities of the Jersey Shore. Everything gets carried by the water and wind and left behind in every nook and cranny. And it's not like all that stuff stays together, room to room or home for home. It gets mixed and swirled and tossed and turned and carried every which way. And what's left behind is nature's remix of modern American life. And then there's the smell. After a flood, there is a damp, dusky, dusty, shadowy smell, the smell of mold. It's a smell you never forget. 
During the six years following Hurricane Katrina, I was chaperoned to college students who joined recovery efforts in New Orleans. In every home we worked, even four and five years after the storm, there was no way to keep the smell of mold from penetrating to your core. This is not the way we like to think of the good old USA. In this country, we believe it's impossible that so many people's material possessions, that great stuff of the American dream, could be upended, torn apart, and left behind. That so many people get left behind. Do you remember those photos from New Orleans? The ones of people stranded on top of their homes, and huddled on makeshift rafts? Please help us spray painted on rooftops. Women wading through water up to their necks, carrying babies high above their heads. That's what compelled me to join recovery efforts. Like the students with whom I volunteered, I was strong, able-bodied, and wished to help. We went in expecting a one-way exchange between ourselves and those in need. But for survivors, it was difficult to accept the help and kindness of strangers. Even folks who lost every material possession needed to offer something, if only a hug in return. We learned it's relatively easy to rebuild a house, but it takes more than hammers and nails to rebuild a life. Three years after Katrina, Miss Bessie's house was one of the first where the students and I were involved in construction instead of demolition. Other crews had stripped everything down to the frame, and though we still wore hard hats and respirators, we now wielded hammers and drills instead of sledgehammers and axes. And all day long, Miss Bessie was there in her floral print housecoat, puttering about in the dusty racket and talking to anyone who would listen. She started to call us her Chicago family, but at first the students didn't understand what to make of Miss Bessie, a woman many generations their senior with smooth dark skin and soft white hair as she told stories of the St. Bernard Parish and how her azaleas had grown so pretty over the 50 years prior to the storm. Whenever someone asked what she herself had been through, she would only talk about the hardships her friends and neighbors had faced. Oh, honey, she'd say, at least I'm on my own. My neighbor Harold and his wife got one of them FEMA trailers that ain't big enough to hold chickens. They've been married more than 50 years, but trying to get along in a tin box that's too small to turn around in about drove them crazy. Now Harold's staying down here in that trailer while his wife way up in Baton Rouge. Miss Bessie seemed to know all the folks in her community, and she wanted us to understand how difficult things had been on everyone else. And my poor friend Maybell, as if that lady ain't lost enough. Miss Bessie would shake her head, lost her home, car, everything she owned. At least my house still standing and y'all here to build it back up. Some students would listen, others were irritated. Some thought Miss Bessie was in the way or would get hurt but she'd be the first to tell you, honey, I've been through so much in my life, I can't be defeated by a little old hurricane. I'm still living and I got all the joy life has given. 
And before long, some students would spend most of their work days sitting and listening. To some, listening to Miss Bessie appeared to be the way that their peers got out of the serious labor of rebuilding. What these folks didn't understand was that those who stopped to listen were helping. Whereas some helped Miss Bessie rebuild her home with hammers and nails, those of us who lent our ears and hearts were helping rebuild her life through stories. A few of these students stayed in touch with Miss Bessie long after we came back to Chicago. This past August was the 10th anniversary of Katrina. It took 10 years of demolition and rebuilding and moving, but Miss Bessie is finally back in her home and so proud of the azaleas that once again grow in her garden. When she moved back into her house, she sent her Chicago family a message. You all have a special place in my heart that I am certain helped carry me through. You are what saved me. I was thinking of Miss Bessie when my husband Ryan and I pulled into my mother's driveway on the fourth morning after the superstorm and saw that mom and her husband Fred were smiling. The water and electricity had been shut off for three days, so mom had a cap pulled over her normally bright hair. Under three layers of flannel shirts and a pair of oversized jeans, she resembled a child dressed for yard work in her father's clothes. Her closets had been on the first floor, which had flooded, so everything she wore was Fred's, right down to the giant boots in which she clomped over the sandbags piled on her front porch. Her home was in shambles, but she and Fred were buzzing with adrenaline and immediately showed us around the neighborhood to point out all the damage the storm had done to the neighbors' houses. In every direction, homes were turned inside out. Cars were sunk in mud and muck and boats listed on broken hulls. Mom wanted us to see buildings that were missing sides and were falling down and to tell us about all the neighbors who had been stranded and hospitalized and who didn't have family coming to help. And she kept saying about her house, it's not so bad, it's really not bad, it could be worse, we're really quite lucky. But when we stepped through her front door, the smell of mold and mildew gripped my lungs and the physical memory of New Orleans came flooding back. And suddenly, I was on autopilot. I distributed particle masks and headlamps and we immediately began to haul furniture out of the house and into the yard. Everything was soaked through, right down to the carpet that welled forth pools of gray water with each step. Everything had to be removed in order to pull up that carpet so the floorboards and the frame could dry. At that time, we still thought we could save her house, but everything in it had to be piled in the front yard. At one corner of the driveway, we carefully stacked whatever we could salvage, things like silverware, glasses, plates, pots and pans, and some artwork from the second floor. But it was the other pile that grew tall with swollen books, soggy bedding and clothes, waterlogged antiques, TVs, lamps, and pretty much anything with an electrical cord. And through it all, my mom somehow kept her sunny optimism. We were talking about downsizing anyway. We can always buy more stuff. 
At first, the state of denial almost drove me crazy. It was really hard for me to see so many of the possessions my mother had collected and loved throughout her life, what she called her treasures, damaged and discarded. In New Orleans, I'd only known folks like Miss Bessie after the storm. I didn't have firsthand experience with what exactly they had lost. Storm damages get calculated in numbers and estimated dollar amounts, but piling waterlogged family heirlooms like my grandfather's grandfather clock in my mom's front yard, I knew that recovery was about so much more than just money. And I honestly didn't know how she would get through it all. As we worked, neighbors would stop by to lend a hand or to swap stories. Mom would step out to the front porch and they'd compare notes on the neighborhood and what they'd experienced the night of the storm. Whenever anyone asked how she was doing, she'd answer, we're okay, it's gonna be just fine. Compared to everyone else, we're very lucky. Like Miss Bessie had done, Mom related the stories of what her neighbors had been through as if her own experience had not been as harrowing. It would take months before she revealed how on the night of the storm, after the power had gone out, she and Fred stayed in their bedroom on the second floor until the howl of the wind was strong enough to make her wonder if the roof would be swept away. When the house began to shake, they hurried downstairs into the centermost bedroom with the fewest windows. Mom, Fred, and their two Great Danes piled into a queen-size bed and huddled in the darkness until sometime in the early morning hours they all fell asleep. Eventually, the roar outside woke Mom with a start, and as she sat up and put her legs over the side of the bed, she realized that the water in her home was already knee-deep. Somehow, in pitch black darkness and three feet of water, my 72-year-old mom led Fred and the dogs back through the house and up the stairs to safety. It wouldn't be until later the insurance adjusters would officially declare the high water mark of the storm surge that came through her home to be 11 feet. 11 feet. If my mom had not woken up in that moment. Another thing a hurricane does is to help you put things into perspective. You can lose every object you own, yet somehow not lose your will to live or your faith in humanity. As my mom kept claiming about the total loss of her home and property, it's not that bad, it's really not that bad, it could have been worse. She was reminding herself that she had what it would take to get through. Like Miss Bessie, it would take more than a hurricane to take her down. The three-year anniversary of Sandy was two months ago, and my mom and Fred and the dogs have moved three times and are currently living in a rental house far away from the shore. Regardless of what you hear in the media or slogans like Jersey Strong or how many times the governor claims that the state has recovered, just like New Orleans, many folks still haven't received insurance payouts, don't have permanent homes, and aren't likely to make it back to the communities where they once lived. Like so many others, Mom and Fred won't be moving back. 
Ryan and I visited them this Thanksgiving and sitting in the kitchen of my mom's rented house around a donated table and chairs, surrounded by the mix of the few treasures we were able to salvage and the ones she has picked up along the way, we were able for the first time to talk about where they wanted to go in order to start over. After nearly three years on the market, their storm-damaged property finally sold earlier this year, and our conversations no longer concerned the never-ending forms and paperwork and loopholes from insurers, government, and realtors, and how Mom and Fred would get by until the house was sold. Instead, this Thanksgiving, we were able to focus on what has yet to come and where they want to settle next. Like for Miss Bessie, it's going to take them a while to fully recover, but through all the hardship and uncertainty from the loss of house and home, we have never forgotten exactly what it is we did not lose. This story was produced by Ami Tin, curated by C.P. Chang, directed by Liz Rice, with music and sound design by Nick Kawahara. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a city arts grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Leopardo Charitable Foundation, our 2018-2019 season sponsor, Skadden Arp Slate Meager and Flom, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. <laughs>